Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast series for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back. We are at our fourth question and answer in our series so far, and we have received some good questions, and let's just jump right back into them. And so remind everybody, every seventh episode, we answer your questions. So here we go. We have a question from Jan of Wyoming. She asks, We all know that beautiful people are considered in society as being smarter and more desirable. Less attractive people have to work really hard to achieve what they do, which is sometimes very little. It seems that this is the same in the church. Mary, Esther, Rachel, and now Aseneth, were these women all valued more because they were beautiful? Even Joseph of Egypt was prized for his handsomeness. How do ordinary people find value? That's quite a question, wow. And it's one that actually is addressed in the third volume in our series, Ruth and the Saviors on Mount Zion. Easterners did see beauty in a different way. 
And because the Old Testament is an Eastern book, it is fair to say that the Eastern understanding of beauty is probably more accurate, at least to the Bible viewpoint, but I would also say to the celestial or Adamic viewpoint. Okay, well, let's elaborate on that. So our standard of beauty is, we think, you know, it's a model, a cookie cutter, we can pin it to certain facial features or certain body types. But you're saying there's Eastern way of looking at beauty that we don't appreciate. There is. Let's maybe just take a very slight tangent, which will end up being related. Ooh, we love tangents on the show. They've... This is our tangent show. That's right. We love tangents. I think the modern concept of this really can be traced back to Plato. Oh, interesting. Okay, another Greek that has screwed up. Another Western thinker. And the idea was that in the heavens, there is this perfect form that is not really tangible, but is sort of in the brain and in the sky. And all of us here are trying to attach ourselves to that ideal that is beyond us. Yes. Yeah, so if there's this idea that there is a perfect version that can be visualized, and we're supposed to measure up against that. Yes, in the mind. And so why that's so interesting is that Lucifer, who is our arch enemy here, he only functions in the mind. He is a spirit, so he does have a spiritual body, but he doesn't live in the physical, tangible world. And so the vast amount of his experience comes through the intangible. It allows him to mock God, but also to do it in a way that he can comprehend. He wants you to buy into the concept of mythos as opposed to the godly concept of logos. So in other words, mythos is a fantasy world. It's all in the head that, that takes you to Alice in Wonderland, that takes you to Disneyland, that takes you to the Wizard of Oz, that takes you to Star Wars. It's all this mythos that isn't real, but it's mentally exciting. And that's juxtaposed against the Eastern idea that the Logos, or the real Word of God, is a tangible, practical, physical truth. No, and that makes perfect sense, now that you explain that. He, being without a body, actually wouldn't be able to understand the sensual things that we are learning down here. And so he would try to distance people to more fanciful, imaginary, and, and frankly, impossible ideals. Well, in the series, we refer to these things as mehanism. And I think probably the world would call it more Satanism or possibly Luciferianism or possibly uh, Illuminism. But we use the term in the series Mahanism because it's the more accurate term. And I believe you touch on that more in Genesis. There is a lengthy discussion on Mahanism in the Genesis series. Okay, so if anybody just dying to check that out right now, you can go find the book and you can dive into that. Yes, thank you. To get back to this concept specifically, Satan has set up in our day, and it's always been connected to Mahanism, the idea that we can become celebrities and that it's the, it's the human celebrity that is the God. It's as if there is a, an image, a, an unattainable, perfect form. You know, the uh, women all the time uh, lament that they see these heavily photoshopped images of women, not knowing that those images have been altered for that purpose. It's mythos. It's not really true. The ideal man, for example, is supposed to have a chest that is 10 inches broader than his waist. And perfect wavy hair of some sort. And women are supposed to 38, 26, uh, yeah. 24, you know, but that's the Platoism. So the more interesting thing to know is that to the Eastern minds, 
beauty was function. The way one became beautiful was fulfilling the measure of their creation. You know, we've heard that phrase before in the scriptures. Do you mind elaborating a little bit in in modern terms on that? It's actually in the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay. And the Lord says that the way to become celestialized and to become a god is to fulfill the measure of your creation. So something was made for a purpose, and if that something does in fact accomplish that purpose or strives to, that is fulfilling its measure. It's beauty in the Eastern eyes. Interesting. So I can give you a short example. It's actually in one of our Genesis studies. I think it's volume eight. When Eliezer was sent by Abraham to find a wife for Isaac, it was extremely important because Isaac was the only covenant son and was the entire bearer of the Abrahamic covenant and would be so pushing it forward through time. So Isaac had to have a wife that would help him in his duties as a priesthood covenant holder, that Eliezer find him a righteous woman because he had to have that help. There was nobody else. This covenant had come upon Abraham. He had to bear it, and now he had to give it to Isaac. And there was no one else. It wasn't like there were 12 sons yet. We're not dealing with Israel. So there was this one boy that had to carry this. So Abraham sends Eliezer out to find this holy wife. And Eliezer does something really interesting. He doesn't go to the Lord and say, I need to find a girl that's 38, 24, 36, blonde, curly, you know, whatever, you know, none of that. Yeah, no, good point. Yeah. What he says to the Lord is, the woman you want him to have, I need a sign, I need help. If you will let her be the woman that when I say to her, I need some water, she will not only give me all the water that I need from the well, which was work, you had to put the thing in and pull it up and get the water, but she'll also offer to water all of my camels. Okay, so not only would she be easy to be entreated to fulfill the request, but would go the extra mile. Here is a woman that's not only very kind and charitable, but also intelligent. He wanted a woman that was willing to fulfill the measure of her creation and do her duty as a nurturer in giving love to a fellow human being in need and to the animals that were connected to that man. A camel drinks 30 gallons of water. Okay, no, that's a good point. So this this was an undertaking if she had to not only water him, but also... Oh, my word. And and he not only had his camel he was riding, but Abraham sent camels for, as gifts, and he sent uh, gold and trinkets and all kinds of wonderful things on some camels. There could have been four to ten camels. Okay. She could have had to pull this thing up. You know, gosh, 30 gallons times 10. But she could have had to put that thing in a, up and down, up and down in the well. That could have been, I don't know, 20, 30 times. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And so that would be quite a sign. Here is someone that for a total stranger... Yes, was willing to be that kind and that charitable. Yes, and that nurturing. A woman's real gift is her ability to to nurture and make a space holy. And we talk about that in more of our studies. We'll talk about it in Ruth and when we talk about celestial femininity. Women have a very special gift that only they possess. And it really is this ability to take a space and make it holy. And so he was looking for a woman that was so into her duty and so into her understanding of what a woman could do that she would make that space holy and would be nurturing in that space. And that was beautiful in the eyes of the Easterners. Okay, so the sign he was asked for was fulfilled. He had a clue, this is the kind of woman suitable for Isaac. He was looking for a beautiful wife, and that was the... Definition of beauty. Yes, for the woman. Now, what's so interesting about that story is it continues. 
Rebecca did decide that she wanted to go with Eleazar and become Isaac's wife, even though she had never met him. She liked what she saw, and certainly all the gold that he brought and was giving out to the family made the family, particularly her rotten brother Laban that we study in depth, he saw the gold and he was like, oh, let's sell sister, you know. <laughs> um, ultimately, Mother and Rebecca felt okay about this, and she decided she would go back to meet Isaac. So the part that's interesting from a male perspective is she's on the camel, and they're going back, and she sees out in the distance as they start to approach Abraham's area, and she sees a man out in the field who is not only looking over the fields of grain and, and ownership, but he's also praying to God to bless all of this area. And she was deeply touched by this. And she turned to Eliezer, and she said, who is this? And he said, well, that's Isaac, the man that we're bringing you to. And she fell in love with him. Oh, interesting. So she, as well as Eliezer, understood what Eastern beauty meant. She yes. saw a man doing what she wanted a man to be doing. Yes. He was doing his priesthood duty and taking care of the area that she would make holy. And so she put a veil on her face right then to respect him. Because with the feminism and stuff, we get confused on some of these things. In the ancient way of thinking, in the Easternisms, a woman would veil her face out of respect for the men that were not her husband. And so she would also do it for a groom because the gift was having her face. So this goes back to the concept that Lady Zion veils her face before the father until the groom comes and claims her. And we used to do this a little more, but, you know, feminism doesn't understand these things and people don't really understand Easternisms and the beauty and they just see it as oppressive. But in the godly sense, it was a woman's gift to veil her face until the wedding when then everybody got to rejoice in her beauty by embracing her and seeing her. So at that moment, by veiling her face, she had basically decided, I want this man. She was already committed to marrying him at that point in her heart. And she like. was doing her duty again. She felt like, I want this guy and I want to respect him. And I don't want the father or anyone to see me until I am given and I give myself to the groom. We also stumble into Westernisms far too easily. One quick example. The beautiful people that are mentioned in the Bible that we struggle with, Esther, for example, and certainly Aseneth, Joseph's wife, and even Joseph, you have to realize that the beauty that was pushed forward that was them always comes from the Mahan side. It was the Egyptian women who were lusting over Joseph. He was deeply burdened and tired about constantly trying to fight off these girls because he was good-looking. He didn't value the beauty. They did. And it's from them that the Western side comes over. Esther was beautiful. The king wanted her. He took her. And she becomes the queen. She wasn't interested in that kind of stuff. We are a subject of our Westernisms. Beauty in Easternism, and I believe that the beauty in the scriptures, really deals with function. Mary was beautiful to God because when he needed her, she said, Behold thy handmaid, what do you want of me? She was beautiful in heaven's eyes. Oh, that's wonderful. So that, that's another key to understanding uh, when we study the scriptures, especially beauty and when things were considered beautiful. You know, a scripture that we've touched on before just came to mind. It's that the Lord in his day was considered, what was the scripture from Isaiah? That he was, there was no handsomeness in him that we would desire him. Oh, thank you. That's brilliant. I actually was giving a lecture once and I had somebody um, raise their hand and say to me, that they thought that Jesus was probably homely oh. 
And I said, okay. I said, we actually have some eyewitnesses of him and even some Roman documents that say he was actually a handsome man and that he was actually a little taller than most people and that he was very uh, lion-esque like the tribes of Judah and had these very charming blue eyes. So from a Western sense, he was in fact attractive. But when they were saying that he wasn't desirable, we're thinking in Western terms, we're thinking, oh, he must have been ugly. But they didn't think he was there to fulfill the function they wanted him to. That's it. So he's not attractive That's as a it. king. That's it. You've got it. You've okay. absolutely got it. He was not beautiful in their eyes because he didn't, he, they didn't believe that he was fulfilling the duty and destiny of what a king would be. You've got it. Bullseye. That's exactly, it's a perfect example of the difference between the way Eastern and Westerners perceive it. You know what? This has been, I think, a great tool to helping us look at the scriptures. We have to let go of some of our Western ways of approaching things. Some of these people were prized of the Lord because they were beautiful in doing what the Lord had asked them to do. Do you remember President Hinckley making a very interesting statement a few years before his death? He made the comment to the young men and women of the church that if they would embrace the gospel and would follow the ordinances and would follow the Lord and would do what he wanted them to do, they would be seen as beautiful ultimately in the eyes of the world. We have put so much up on what Satan has pushed on us, or as you've said, the Mahonists have pushed on us through time, that there is this intangible, impossible version of what good and holy is, or beautiful is, and it's there to completely distract us from reality, which is anyone that follows the Lord and does what he has asked will, as President Hinckley was saying, be seen as beautiful. As long as Satan can control the argument and the debate, he's able to put it into impossibilities that you can never fulfill. And when you decide that you can't fulfill them, he then blames the Lord and God as setting you up to fall. Oh. It's all a lie. Satan is a liar. Okay, thank you, Reed. Uh, that's a new key that I think we can all benefit from as we study the scriptures. Let's get on to our next question. Kari from South Salt Lake has asked... I have noticed that Mormons, whom you call restored Christians in your lectures, share many symbols with pagans. How do you explain this? Wow, that's another great question. We've got some great listeners on this show. The simplest answer is that all truth can be circumscribed into one big circle. All truth belongs to God. God is the God of truth. And so any truth that is truth can be connected to him. Okay. So... Yes, there are some symbols that get shared between cultures. Most of the holy ones, I would argue, we had first. Oh, well, as she would probably want to follow up, the LDS Church has only been around since 1830. So how did we have them first if some of these things supposedly are older? Well, that is a good question. The truth is, we believe we are a restoration of ancient truths and that we live in the fullness of times, as the scriptures say. And that there were six dispensations of gospel purity that were given from heaven. And there were little ones in between, but six major ones before the great final millennial year at the end. And so these symbols and these teachings were given, and as they came down through time, got corrupted or stolen. The Lord would say to his disciples when asked about these similar things, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. You know, that's always been a fascinating phrase for me. Care to take a brief tangent to explain that to us? I will. King David said that a thousand years was like a day to the Lord. And each dispensation is roughly a thousand years. I wouldn't say it's exactly a thousand years to the second. 
but it's roughly a thousand years. So the idea was that God sitting up in heaven at the center of the universe is looking out and his entire creation revolves around him. And it takes a thousand years in symbol for us to go from his face to around to his face. Again, symbolic and easternly, the idea was that he sees us and he teaches us and we commune with him. And then we go around... And have a chance to practice what he taught us. Well, sure, go through the day. And as we go through the day, Satan messes everything up. And we come back around and he comes back around to God's face. And he's like, oh boy, we got to start over. Let's give a new dispensation and teach him the truth again. So there were symbols that were given at each of these intervals and each of these times that Satan later took and corrupted as he stole and put new meanings on things. As he put his mythos on it to going back to what we had said before. I think an easy one would be the all-seeing eye. Oh, okay. Yeah, we've seen that. Uh, any student of American history would be very familiar. It's on our money. It's, it's on our important buildings. Well, Lucifer uses it, and God uses it. From Lucifer's perspective, it's a symbol of the Illuminati. And the idea with them is that it's Satan's eye that is at the top of the pyramid structure of his Tower of Babel, so to speak and that he controls all and is the light at the top of this pyramid raining down on all the little minions below him. Oh, similar to what we saw in Lehi's dream of a spacious building. So he would be sitting at the top of his spacious building. I think that's a fine way of saying that. Now from God, who was the real all-seeing eye, the symbol meant that his watchful care as a father was looking over his children constantly, and that there was nothing that his children could ever do or ever be, or ever experience that God didn't know. And so the idea there was that there was no reason for you not to go to your father God, because he already knew what you had done, he knew what you were doing, he already knew your sins, and there was no reason for you not to run to him and let him embrace you and teach you, because he already was watching over you anyway. Okay, so originally this would have been to those that were instructed in it, a symbol that he's a dutiful parent. He's a dutiful parent, and he already knows what you did. If you go to him in prayer and say, Heavenly Father, I have sinned. I've done these things. I need help. I need to be better. I need you to help me, or I just need you to protect me or watch after me. He already knows. So you're only cheating yourself if you don't go to God and confess your sins and confess your needs and talk to him. He already sees you. Okay, so wanting to corrupt that symbol... Satan took the same concept of I can see you, but turned it into a I can control you. Exactly. Another one that's been corrupted is the signet of Solomon. Explain that for us, will you? Well, Solomon's signet was a five-pointed star. And when it points up, it's supposed to remind you of the star of Bethlehem or the idea that stars would be a sign from God of truth. And to look up to them, in a sense. To look up to them for signs, but not for astrology. Oh, okay. Okay. Because there is a cult called the Watcher Cult, which is Mahanistic. And they do believe that the stars will foretell the future. Now, the stars do foretell the future, but they foretell the future as a sign. So, for example, the Star of Bethlehem was the foretelling and the telling that the Prince of Peace, or the Lord of Sabaoth, had been born. So, it does do that. But the stars don't tell you... They don't tell you your horoscope, in a sense. They're not going to tell you what burrito you should order today. They're not going to tell you what your lottery numbers should be or what your future partner is going to look like. 
Yes, they will never tell you what burrito to buy. <laughs> it is a feasting show, so we do make food references. So the signet for Solomon was a five-pointed star? It was. When it pointed up, it had to do with this idea that we've talked about. When it pointed down, it talked about the Hebrew understanding of grace, and that in the future, their sins would be redeemed on five points. Oh, that's interesting. Two in the hands, two in the wrists, and one in the feet. And you can see it in the star. The top of the star that points up are the hands. The part that's coming down is the wrists. And the single one is the feet. And of course, we know that Jesus was crucified in that manner. That star became the symbol of the claim of the house of Judah, or the coming king of kings, as coming through Solomon and David. Oh, fascinating. So this is a much older symbol now, everybody is immediately going to visualize a five-pointed star pointed down. They're going to think Satanists, the yeah. cult of the devil. Yeah. But you're telling us this was a holy symbol that is much older than what the, you know, in the 1950s, I believe, is when the Satanists took the symbol as their own. They understood that Solomon, in his wisdom, had the ability to do some incredible things. He was, in his day, considered a genius, which they saw as a form of magic. So in order to connect to Solomon and to try and control Solomon, or to try and control the angels that they believed Solomon controlled, they took Solomon's symbol and used it in an evil way. But it was not evil when it was originally given. Okay, so again, it follows this same pattern we're seeing, that the Lord, anything he reveals to man, Satan will immediately pounce on and try to commandeer it for his own purposes. He does. Now, the other thing that's really useful to remember in all of this is the joke is kind of on them. Just because somebody sets up a symbol and says it means this, if nobody knows that it means that but them, the joke is on them. So one example, for example, would be the Christmas tree. The Christmas tree was originally a Mahan symbol and had to do with the idea of demonic possession. It is kind of fun to poke your secular Christian friends with Jeremiah's lament in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 10, he makes the following statement. Now, just listen to this. Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of a forest, the work of the hands of the workman, with an axe. And they deck it with silver and with gold. And they fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. You know, that starts to sound a lot like a Christmas tree to me. Well, that's the joke, see, is that when the pagans were doing it, it was being done as an idol, and it was a sign of Mahanism and Mahanistic demon possession. In fact, you might have seen on the Assyrian reliefs their god holding a little basket and taking a pine cone out of it. Oh, yes. We've been looking, as we've been studying Jonah, we've been looking into the many photographs that have been taken of the ruins of Nineveh. If you haven't looked at those, please go online. It's an amazing archaeological discovery. But yes, some of those reliefs are there. That pine cone grows into a tree, and the tree grows into the demonic stuff, which we don't really care about anymore. But that's the way it was seen anciently. Now, why we don't care... That's a good point. I actually don't care what Mahanists think. No. Why we don't care is because when Jesus came and taught us the truth, and when Christianity came in, the Christians took this symbol that was kind of shoved on them, and they saw that how the tree was green even in the winter. And it was always green. It was evergreen. And the evergreen force of life that surrounded them, that filled them with joy, was the Lord. He was the only life in the dead world. 
He was the God of life that went into the realms of the dead, death and destruction and winter and cold, and he was the always green tree, the force of life, the God of life, in a world of death and decay and darkness and winter. He was the spring. He was the new life. We've taken it and we've reincorporated it. And in fact, we put the star of Bethlehem, Solomon's five-pointed star, on top to light the world. We have every right to take any symbol we want and incorporate it into truth and teach Jesus Christ of it. And we have every right to claim back old symbols that were once a part of religion that were taken from us. And we even have a few that maybe we don't use today because they're too hard to explain. But the secret and the truth is that most of the symbols that mankind uses have a connection back to the ancient dispensational teachings. And if you can restore the truth in it, you'll see that all these symbols bend and bring you back to the plan of salvation, to the great plan of happiness, and to the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, that's wonderful. We need to continue to study the scriptures and draw closer to the Lord that we may have his spirit, the Holy Ghost, be with us so that we be not deceived or confused by these things that pop up from time to time. A, a symbol that we learn in our studies in school may be tied to some ancient cult or some ancient religion when in fact they had stolen it from the Lord himself. We thank everyone for listening. We'd like to remind you that our podcast is not endorsed or have the blessing of any religion or denomination. This is our views and our understanding of the gospel. We thank everyone for listening, and until our next podcast, may the Spirit of the Lord be with you. Music